And of course, it's the first time I'd really been outdoors for about a month, and you know, all the other things that my brain had had to cope with, with the uh, suicide attempt. And I just freaked out. I was crying, I was shaking. Outside just seemed so enormous. Welcome to The Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hey, I want to welcome Gary Pollard to the show. Gary, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Al. I'm, I'm delighted to be here from all the way across the pond. All the way across the pond, exactly. Um, <laughs> hey, if you could start by uh, just sharing a bit about yourself, that would be awesome. Okay, so uh, as you said, my name's Gary. I'm uh, chief exec of a men's mental health organization over here in the UK called Men Tell Health. M-E-N-T-E-L-L. Um, it's a lot easier to see it than it is to say it. Um, so I always I like to think that we are, are a men-focused organization rather than being a men-only organization. All the information we have on our website is just as applicable to men as to women. And even though we are kind of men-focused, we are in no way saying that men's mental health is any more or less important than women's. Um, it's just it's a, it's a bit of a gap in the market, certainly over here in in the UK when it comes to men's mental health, and I'm a man, so that's kind of where it came from. Yeah, awesome. Can you tell us uh, how the the organization started? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so originally, uh, it's grown somewhat, but originally it was just a blog. Um, if you go back to about 2008, I, was, I started becoming quite ill. Um, never had any kind of mental illness uh, as far as I was aware any problems before that but I was getting a kind of stomach pains um, and they would come and go so they would last maybe a day or two and then they would ease and they'd disappear and then the book after a few more days they would come back and again we went through this kind of cycle of, of sort of pain and recovery um, but every time it came back it, it lasted a little bit longer and it hurt a little bit more so I went to the doctors um, quite regularly. I wasn't really one for going to doctors, but it was it was quite uncomfortable. But every time I went to the doctors, he tended to say that it was, a, oh, well, it's stomach ache or it's maybe a kidney stone or it's a urine infection. And every time I went, it was something different. And this lasted for about six months. Um, so, that, so around when we got to about October 2008, um, I was in real pain, you know, constantly missing work, just absolute agony. Um, and to cut a relatively long story short, um, at that point I was in, I was in total agony, and I know men say it all the time. I thought I was dying. I, I literally thought I was dying. The pain was so so bad. Uh, we got admitted to my local hospital um, at around let's say it was about midnight on the Saturday into Sunday night. I had a, I kind of spent that night and that day having tests. Um, I had a MRI scan the Sunday afternoon at about four o'clock. Um, and I remember saying to the nurse, you know, is, is, is everything okay? Is there anything I need to worry about? And she said, the doctor will come and speak to you. And I thought, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> that doesn't sound good at all. Um, my wife and I had had a, we just had our baby in the, in the, in the August. So there was kind of how life had kind of changed immeasurably by then anyway. Um, the doctor came to see me at about 6 p.m. And my whole family was there, my parents, my brother's sisters, my wife, my little, you know, a newborn. Um, and the doctor kind of said, right, you're, basically you're going to need an operation. Wow. Uh, and that, I thought he meant maybe one day next week, you know. And he said, no, no, now, now. And, but even then I thought he meant maybe first thing in the morning. Um, but no, no, now. <laughs> so he took all my family outside just to explain it to them first. Um, I, I do distinctly hearing through the door him saying, look, we're not really going to know how bad it is until we, we get him on the theatre table and kind of open him up and see did they which as know, I say, life was already a bit of a blow did they know what they were looking no, they didn't, for no, what I mean, they was, were going in was, for no no well if they did they didn't say anything to me um so that was at about six o'clock by nine o'clock that evening three hours later i was having emergency surgery uh so i was in the operating theater for about five hours i think woke up in the high dependency unit of our local hospital with tubes 
you know, coming out my nose, coming out my stomach, coming out of my neck, coming out of my mouth, and, you know, coming out of almost every orifice. And basically exploratory at this point, as far as you know. No, at that point, the, you know, I woke up and I had about 80 staples up and down my chest. And basically, um, what had happened in my colon had burst. Wow. So you can imagine, yeah, if you're pulling that face, listening to this thing, and ooh, that must have hurt. Yeah, it really did. Um, but I was, you know, I was sort of on painkillers and, and morphine, so I didn't really know a great deal about it. But I do remember, obviously, feeling the tubes. It was a bit like that. If you've seen The Matrix, you know, where where Neo wakes up in that sort of gel and he's <laughs> just tubes sticking out of my belt. Right, like right. Um, so, uh, you know, and I remember sort of patting down my body thinking, oh, yeah, tube there, tube there, staples there. And I had this thing attached to my, which uh, I didn't know at the time because of the morphine, but it was basically a colostomy bag, a, a stoma bag. Um, and that was kind of, so that would, so as I said, my colon had burst and, and, and I needed that to help me heal, I guess. Um, I don't mind admitting I didn't cope with that very well. I didn't really cope with it very well mentally. I didn't really cope with it very well physically when I got out of hospital. I felt a bit embarrassed by it. I felt a bit ashamed of it, and I felt ashamed that I felt ashamed because, you know, people have this through their whole lives and, and cope perfectly well with it. So I, the fact that I wasn't coping made, didn't make me feel good about myself. Hey, can I interrupt you for a second? Can I? Uh, so I'm I'm curious of a couple of things before we go on. One is when you were going okay. into that surgery, you had no idea. I mean, that was an exploratory surgery. They didn't really know what was going on. Is that right? Yeah, yeah I guess so. I mean, if if they knew, they certainly didn't tell me. Right. Um. You know, as I said, I remember him saying to my parents, "We're not really going to know until we do get you know we get him open and we kind of." So, see what see what's happened up to the MRI scan showed that something wasn't right, but I guess they didn't they didn't have a full handle on it until until they got me on the theatre, I guess. So what's going on in your mind? I mean, you had been dealing, it sounds like six months or so of pain in your stomach, and Absolutely. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, yeah. you're in the emergency room, and they're saying we're we're going in for surgery right now. <laughs> what's going on in your mind yeah, at that yeah. point? I think it was a bit of a. It was a bit of a shock, I guess. You know, I didn't, you know, I think in that preceding six months already, I was ill. But as I said, my, my wife and I had our, had our first baby. Um, my uncle, who was close to it, died. My dog had died. So it felt a little bit like life was sort of coming at me from all angles, you know, sort of left you here and a jab there and an uppercut there. So I felt a bit of a daze, really. And then, you know, not really being a, a doctor's kind of guy. Next thing I know, I'm having emergency surgery. So life was... Life was a bit tough. <laughs> did uh, did anybody so, say, you know, maybe this is just anxiety with all of these stressors going on? Your stomach aches clearly could no, just be no, anxiety? Nobody mentioned that at all. I mean, they were focusing more on maybe they thought it was kidney stones or a kidney infection or a urine infection or irritable bowel syndrome, I think was one of them. And, and so, uh, no, nobody had mentioned so, illness at all. So looking in hindsight as well, do you feel like doctors clearly missed something? Like they should have been able to to realize that something was going on with your colon all this this six months? Yeah, I certainly think they should have done some tests, which they never did. Um, you know, this, I think if you're going every two or three weeks for the doctor for the same thing and it isn't getting any better, in my mind, that's that's a point where you say, let's have a look. Might be something going on here, but. You know, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Right. Um, I think yeah. probably because I always saw a different doctor, so you, you don't get that consistency of diagnosis. Yep, that's know? a really good point. Um, so bring us back to the point. Yes. So you, you get out of surgery, like you said, you had a colostomy bag and weren't really handling yeah. that well. And in uh, at that point, did they inform you that it was going to be a temporary deal, the colostomy bag, or is that something that, that you still uh, deal well, with? It is, again, the... They don't know when any time they do this operation, they do it in a way where it can be reversed to make it easier for them. Should it be reversed? But it isn't always the case. Um, so I had that bag. I had it about eleven months, so just a little bit under a year. Um, and when it was you know, kind of all put back to normal, as it were, um, I thought, you know, that was a horrendous time in my life. But now is the time. Now we can focus on, you know, the positives, as it were. Um, but in in many ways. That was the start of it. So um, even though the bag had reversed, I found myself, I could still feel it stuck to my skin, even though it wasn't there. Uh, I would have nightmares that it had kind of burst all over the bed. And I don't need to tell you what, what's inside a colostomy bag. 
So when that happened, I could smell it. I could see it. You know, I couldn't, of course, because it wasn't there. But, you know, in my mind, I could. Um, I noticed that I'd become, in that 11 months, quite introverted, which is something I never was before. I stopped going out because I was embarrassed that I had it. Um, I would make excuses, you know, if our family, if we were having a family event, I would make excuses why I couldn't go to it. Um, and I think looking back, probably not at the time, but looking back, I became quite snappy. I was quite irritable, quite short-tempered. Every, again, everything I never was before. Um, and so after that, after it got reversed, now I kind of kept having these flashbacks and, and nightmares. You know, I tried to take my own life um, because it just got so bad. Uh, and at that point, I was admitted to a local mental uh, health hospital, uh, and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. So you went from, you got the colostomy bag, you start having nightmares yeah. and things about, like, what would happen if this burst, you know, I roll over on it in, in bed. You didn't want to go in yeah. to go to family events because you're kind of freaking out about having the bag, you're embarrassed about it. And then you jump from there to all of a sudden you were having suicidal thoughts. Um, how did you get to the point of suicidal thoughts? Well, I think because I didn't, I had no experience of mental illness at the time. I, I didn't, as, I, as far as I was aware, I didn't know anybody with a, a mental health problem. Um, certainly nobody in fa my family had ever spoken about it. So when these things were happening, I wasn't at the point where I said, oh, you know what that is? That's post-traumatic stress, that. It, it was just it was just nightmares. It was these flashbacks. I found myself having kind of panic attacks if I was near a hospital. You know, again, that was a, one of the triggers. But I, I suppose I didn't have the self-awareness mm. to kind of acknowledge them and kind of recognize what they were. And you probably didn't share it with anybody. No, I didn't. Um, you know, being a bloke, that's not what we do, is it? Right, right. <laughs> um so I th yeah, and so I think my mind was then going, "Oh, what's wrong?" The first time it happened, it was it was incredibly scary. But then the second time it happens, third time, fifth time, twelfth time, sadly it becomes quite normal, and you just think, "Oh, that's that's just something I have now." Um, and as I are said, you I, referring I to the? Made, are you referring to the suicidal thoughts that became normal? Yeah, and I just, and the flashbacks and the nightmares that that come with PTSD. Yeah, and the and the anger. Yeah, and anger the, and the yes. anger that can be a definite symptom for men with depression. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I didn't take it out on. Well, you know, some of my wife probably cut, but you know, I didn't. It, my anger didn't manifest in that. I didn't hit anybody. I didn't hit anything. I was more angry with myself. You know, and I. As I say, you stop seeing friends. And you, well, when they invite you around, you stop going. Eventually, they just think, well, we won't bother inviting him because he won't come anywhere. And that happened kind of with family. My brother kept referring to me as grumpy, <laughs> which, is probably, you know, that didn't help either, you know. But I think that's kind of – you can't blame him really because well, in the early days I would go to events and I would just literally sit in the corner, keep my head down, not engage with anybody really. Um I always thought, you know, if I wore clothes because of the, even though the bag was not there, I felt like it was so obvious that I had one. You know, if I looked in the mirror, I could see the outline of it on my skin. So I would wear a vest and I would wear a t-shirt and I would wear a long sleeve t-shirt and then a jumper and then a coat. You know, I, would, I looked enormous, <laughs> you know, wearing all these layers of clothes just to try and mask um, the bag, but which wasn't there anyway, really. Right. Wow. Hey, um, tell us a bit more about your suicidal ideations. Were these general thoughts of, I just don't want to be around, or did you actually create kind of a plan, or how, how bad did they get? Um, a bit of both, really. Um, I think I just, I think the nightmares and the, the flashbacks took their toll on me, you know, little by little. I reached a point where I, just, I really can't do it anymore. I can't have these things anymore, because it would... It would ruin my entire day. I'd wake up having a bad night. That would lead to a bad day. That bad day would then lead to a worse night. That worse night would lead to a next worse day. Um, and it, as I said, it just felt a bit like life was sort of coming at me from all sides. And um, I just I couldn't cope with it. So I started, um, I started sort of hoarding the pills I had. Having had the surgery, we had quite a lot of pills in the house, um, as you can imagine. So I kind of started hoarding those. Um, which I could do in secret, you know, nobody would see me do it. <clears throat> um, and you do think, you know, depression is, it's a liar, depression. It makes you think things that aren't true. It makes you think things about yourself that aren't true. Um, so as much as I love my wife, I love my, my little boy that we had, 
my brain was saying, yeah, but they're, they're better off without you, though, aren't they? You know, if you're having all these thoughts, they'll they're probably be better off. I know it's going to be difficult for them at first, but f- in the long run, they'll be better off. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, I had those lies of depression as well, and I got to a point where I just felt like a burden. Um, And I've mentioned probably on on this show before, I've mentioned that I understand now because of how low I was and where I was at when people say I would never take my life because of my family, and then they end up so sadly taking their lives. Um, it, you feel such yeah. a burden. And like you said, like maybe they'd be better off without me. Um, and it is the lies yeah. of depression and it really messes with your mind. So you had these suicidal ideations and did you end up then um, getting yourself to a doctor or how did you finally get to, to some support? Um, I took an overdose uh, of pills, as I said, which I had quite a lot of in the house. So that wasn't really a struggle f- to find the, the medication. Um, and thankfully, my wife found me, called the emergency services, um, and they obviously. And I mean, it's funny in a way, but when when I was taken into A and E, I guess you'd call it ER, um, the kind of nurse looked at the pills I'd taken and kind of went, "Yeah, you could, you know, you could have took a thousand of them; it wouldn't have made any difference," you know, because <laughs> you know I didn't research it into that degree. I thought, well, if you take enough of anything. You know, yeah, it's gonna. All, all it left me with was, you know, an upset stomach for about a week. <laughs> so, and, and thankfully, you, my wife found me. When your wife found you, were you completely unconscious at that point? And um, and then I when, think I was just drifting. Okay. You know, it's a bit like when you're falling asleep, you know, you're kind of half asleep, half awake. I was kind of in that place. Um, but the ambulance came incredibly quickly, you know, and um, got me sorted out. And then after that, I was so because of you know where I was. They admitted me into a, a local mental health hospital, um, and I was in there for about a month, really. So I got diagnosed then, which the diagnosis was hugely beneficial to me because all of a sudden that taught me that, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going crazy in inverted commas. You know, there's a reason why this has happened. There's a reason why I'm having these flashbacks, and then so I could look into it and do a little bit of research. And actually, the, things started to make a bit more sense to me then. Right. So, right. We- sometimes I guess you could go through this darkness to get to the to the light was this an inpatient program i'm guessing then um no not that i remember i mean you, i was in there about a month and then you just get signed off to a, a community what we call over here a cpr okay but, CRN, I should say. but when you were in there like for community nurse. when you were in there for a month however uh that was 24 hours you weren't going home you were there for one oh, month yeah no, so no, no. so there's a week yeah, so here in the States, we would call that an inpatient program. So inpatient right, okay. for 20, 24 hours a day for a full month. Yeah, so yeah about, yeah, about four weeks, maybe a little less, but about that. You know, and I'd kind of developed some strange uh, quirks, I guess. I really struggled, having come out of there, I really struggled with crowds. And I kind of do, even now, a little bit. If I feel like I'm, I'm kind of trapped in, I kind of get a bit panicky. Uh, and so I remember, as I think I'd been there about three weeks, they started talking about, you know, getting me out and getting me home. What they said was, look, we'll we'll get your wife. Your wife can come and take you maybe to the local park for, for an hour and then bring you back. And then the next day you can go for two hours and come back. And then next day maybe you go home for half a day and then come. You know, so it was the idea was it was staggered. I remember my wife came and took me out. And, of course, it's the first time I'd really been outdoors for about a month and you know all the other things that my brain had had to cope with with the uh, suicide attempt and I just freaked out I was crying I was shaking outside just seemed so enormous I mean I know it's big anyway but you know when the local park that I've been to a thousand times felt like it was the entire world you know and it, it really felt intimidating for me and I think I was probably only out there about 20 minutes. My wife said, look, we'll, we'll just take you back. We'll kind of chalk this up and we'll, we'll, we'll go again. So the next day when I went out, they said, okay, you're going to go home for half a day. And I said, well, I really struggled going to the park for an hour. So are we really in that place yet? And they went, no, no, yeah, that's fine. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, it, you know, I assumed that it was going to be, okay, he's not ready for that. Let's do a little bit more help with him, a little bit more work with him, and then we'll we'll try again. But it was like, no, next step, even though I couldn't cope with the first step. So I kind of felt a little bit like, well, I mean, when I finally got home, I really struggled to understand who I was. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know, you know, what kind of person I was. It felt like 
I wrote about it, I think, one of the early days on, on the site was, if you've seen Terminator 2, that piece where the, the T-1000 kind of falls apart and he's just in little blobs on the floor and he kind of eventually kind of regroups together. I felt a bit like that. I just felt bits of me were, were just all over the place and I had to kind of put them all back together and find a... I didn't want to be the person I'd just been because he was snappy and irritable. I didn't want to be him. Um, but maybe I didn't want to be the person before that either. You know, I wanted to use the experiences I'd had and try and help other people. And I guess that's where that's what the, that, that was the catalyst, I guess, for for the site that now exists. Oh, that's awesome. When when you were first diagnosed, were um, I can completely understand your feeling of almost relief, like wow, there really is this is real, and there's something I can do about yeah. it. Right? Um, was PTSD yeah. your only diagnosis? And also, if you could, for the listeners. Um, explain just a, a briefly what PTSD is. Um, so no, PTSD wasn't my only diagnosis. I had PTSD, acute anxiety, and depression. Um, but PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. Generally, it's um, used in relation to the military. Obviously, the guys who are serving must see some horrendous things. And it, it's funny, it's often the first question that people ask me when they say, when I say oh, I've got PTSD, they say, oh, you, are you, were you in the army? Um but anybody can get it. It's any kind of traumatic event. Now, that in itself is a strange definition because what might be traumatic to you might not be traumatic to me. Um, but any event, uh, what happens is your brain, most of the time, your brain works out what you're doing. It filters some of that information. I'll remember that. And if I were to ask you what you had for your lunch last Tuesday, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me because your brain thinks, well, I don't, I don't need to remember that. That's, that's trivial. Um, but what happens when you have this traumatic event? Sometimes it's too much for the brain to process. Um, and so it, it doesn't go to become a memory because it, you, it's, it's a bit different. So your brain thinks, mm, I really don't know what to do with this. So it kind of goes around and around in your short-term memory um, because it can't be processed. And so and because of this sort of cycle, that's why it keeps coming up in flashbacks. That's why you keep remembering it when you dream it because your brain hasn't processed it. So that's kind of the long and short of it. So I really can appreciate the, the point you made about it being almost a, a bit vague of a definition because what is traumatic to one person may not be so traumatic for another. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people have, um, one of the things we do at Mentel is the mental health first aid training. Um, and as part of that, they talk about the stress bucket. So everybody carries around this stress bucket with them. Um, but your bucket will be different to me. So whether you put in there, you know, the, the wife and the, the children and your work and money and the car and, you know, all these things we all have to deal with in life. But, you know, your bucket might be large. You might be able to deal with all sorts of things before it overflows. Someone else's bucket might be a lot smaller than that. Uh, and that doesn't really take much at all before it overflows. Uh, and that's kind of, that's life really. So once your bucket does overflow, that's, that's when problems can really start. So I want to take us back to your story just a bit. Um, you know, you mentioned going out to the park. I, I like the fact that this inpatient program gradually took steps, although you felt like the steps were a little quick in your case. <laughs> um, what, uh, yeah. so did you, um, here in the U.S., a lot of times from inpatient, people will end up in what we call a step-down program, and they're going half days for three weeks or different lengths of time, yeah. depending on the person. Did you um, end up just going home, and what steps did you take then, and how were you coping at that point? Yeah, so I just gradu graduated you know, just to going back home and into you know uh, my normal life again. But I think having the diagnosis was massively helpful because I could – my, and my wife too, we could read about it. So um, <clears throat> we tended to, the changes we made were just things like if, if people were coming around to see me, maybe not the old, the old dust don't come at the same time, you know, because I was having a bit of a, a thing with crowds. I don't like to be too crowded. Um, you know, and other people who, when I was, before my diagnosis, had just called me grumpy and stopped inviting me places and stopped coming around. They kind of went, why didn't you just tell us? And my answer was always, well, because I didn't know. <laughs> what was I going to tell you? You know, I didn't know what was going on in my own brain. Um, and so what I started to do, and obviously I, I could read about it and that was fine, but I was still learning it myself every day. 
you know, how I felt, how, what made me feel better, what made me feel worse, what things that I struggled with, what really helped me. And it, you've got to kind of relearn these things, you know, things that I used to really love doing. I was you know, I'm not sure I'm interested in that anymore. Things that I've never been particularly interested in, I, I suddenly developed a quite a quite passion for. Um, I remember one of the aspects of the community care we had was what we called ecotherapy, you know, being out in nature and and I've never been a gardener, never been particularly into gardening at all. But I thought, oh well, I'll give it a I'll give it a try, you know, I'll show willing. I'll just go and smile and pretend it's all right. But so we went up to this own uh, kind of community garden. And you know, I loved it. It was so peaceful, it was so quiet, um, and you could just totter around doing the little jobs that they wanted. I started I became a bit of a sort of furniture restorer, taking all the old garden furniture. But it was just a place where, you know, it was out in the open, no mobile phones going off, no cars going past. It was just lovely. And I, I realised then that actually you need that little bit of peace just to, you know, take a five-minute break on your brain and just say, let's just calm down for, you know, half an hour. And that was massively helpful. Massively I, think, helpful. Uh, I think finding some type of hobby is really important. Yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like you Couldn't found a couple of new hobbies. And in addition to that, I think um, it, yeah. makes, it makes me think a bit of mindfulness too, right? Like you could, it could be quite meditative. I would imagine doing some gardening and focusing just on that and letting go of all your other thoughts. It's great. Um, I remember, I think one of the first times I went to see my doctor after I came out, um, I think I was expecting him to just sort of, give me some more tablets and pills and medication. <clears throat> but what he did was, he said, I'm not going to give you any medication. I'm going to write this down for him. He wrote down the title of a book um, called Mindfulness for Dummies, which must be downstairs. Uh, and that became my Bible. <laughs> you know, that became my, I took it everywhere with me. I'd never heard of mindfulness until that point, but so it, that was a huge, huge help for me. So when you left the Just hospital, remembering to be now. Yeah. So when you left the hospital, um, you weren't taking any medication. Did you still see a therapist? What other pieces were you still doing in addition to finding some new hobbies? Um, I, well, I just started on the medication as I came out. Um, I did. I, I did schedule me for some CBT, some cognitive based therapy. That didn't really work for me, if I'm honest. <clears throat> um, it didn't really didn't really help. So after about a year, I started doing a treatment called EMDR. I don't know if you're aware of that, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, and that's very good for for post traumatic stress disorder, which is uh, which helped me enormously. Hence, I can come on a podcast like this with you and talk about it <laughs> without being in some, uh, you know, a jabbering wreck in the corner. I, I have heard uh, people describe EMDR as far as um, a therapy for particularly for PTSD as being um, yeah. almost like an end all be all like they, they loved it and it had helped them in so yeah. many ways. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that worked for you as yeah. well. Yeah. So the, I mean, the idea of it is that is, you know, as we talked about earlier, your brain can't really process it. So what they do, you it's effectively somebody waves their finger backwards and forwards in front of you. You concentrate on that while they're talking. So you br sort of your brain is concentrating on that. Well, actually, and then subconsciously, it starts to re reprocess that memory. So it just it's not about forgetting that it ever happened. It's just being able to kind of acknowledge that, oh, yeah, that was a thing that happened. It was terrible, but, you know, it didn't, it didn't kill me. You know, it's... Uh, because I was a bit worried. I, I didn't want to. I was a bit worried when I read about it. I suppose I misunderstood it. And I thought I don't want to just pretend like it never happened, and I didn't want to forget it because that didn't seem right either. But no, it's it's about just a bit learning to cope with it and processing it as it is, as you would with any other memory, you know, good or bad. So it it doesn't impact on your life quite as much. You know, you look back at it now and think, oh yeah, it was, you know, nearly ten years ago now. So so the way I understand the way I understand EMDR is. It's combining either eye movement or some type of sensory input. Sometimes it's tapping along yeah. with the talk therapy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with me, the my therapist just waved the fingers between you know backwards and forwards like a, a very quick pendulum in front of your eyes. Um, but it was a huge benefit of me. I know not, it doesn't always work for anybody. Like any therapy, it's you know it doesn't always work. 
Um, some of the groups we run, guys, always oh yes, it's terrible CBT. Maybe it's, I don't think it's terrible, it's just maybe it's not for you at that time. Maybe six months further down the line, it would have worked so much better. Um, but it's a very personal thing, therapy. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, it works for some because I just was thinking back to my comment of the end-all, be-all. And it may have been the end-all, be-all for one person, but certainly it works yeah. for some better than for others. And it um, yeah. just like CBT wasn't supportive for you, I've heard of CBT working immensely for some people. And uh, I think it's Couldn't important. I think it's important to create a tool belt of supports right so you have friends in there you have exercise in there you have mindfulness in there you have some type of therapy if that's helpful and you may or may not uh, have medication as well absolutely you just take them out of your your bag whenever you need them i mean we have a thing on the website we call the man kit and that is exactly that it's about 25 different just self-help strategies everything from mindfulness meditation eating better exercise, creativity, all of these things that you can try all pretty much free, if not very, very low cost. And we're not seeing any of them will all, you know, we're not seeing they'll all work, but actually what we're saying is, you know, just, just try one. And if that doesn't work for you, try the next one. And Absolutely. if that doesn't work, try the one after that. Absolutely. That is great advice. Um, so at this point, I know you had, uh, it sounds like your um, very traumatic deal was in 2008, uh, fast forward, we're at 2017. Um, what, from your two tool belt, what works for you and how do you maintain at this point your mental health? Um, I love to write. So I, I write a lot. Um, and the website started when <clears throat> maybe a year or so after I diagnosed, I plowed my energies into a blog. I wanted to write a blog. Not necessarily to share it with the world. Um, I used to always write my blog as if nobody would ever read it. Um, but I wanted to just write it and get it out there and just so I made sense of it. So just even if it, I saw it written down and I had the chance to process it myself. But it would, if it, I thought, well, if it makes, helps make sense of my brain, it might help somebody else. Um, so that's where the website started, really. It was just a, a blog and a way for me to make sense of my befuddled brain. So writing... Uh, any other pieces that you still do? Are you still on medication? Yes, yeah, still on medication. Um, I have a bit of a, a funny relationship with the medication. I kind of I hate taking it. I hate that there's a big pile of medication next to my bed. Um, but I, a friend of mine recently kind of said, well, look, if you were diabetic, you'd have to take medication for that because you would, you'd be ill. You wouldn't question it. You'd just take it. And I kind of thought, you know what, you're right. You know, I, <laughs> I give myself a hard time about it, but I think, well, if I, I'm, I am ill, I have a mental illness, I need to take medication. So I, I think I'm, I'm learning to stop giving myself quite such a hard time about it. Um, so medication is good. Music for me is, uh, I love music. I'm, I surround myself with music any, any and all the time. Um, so music helps me and I've got spending time with, you know, family and friends and, and doing what I do now for a living, which is, uh, helps me every single day. And then, uh, and I want to get more into your, uh, website and your organization in a second here, but, um, just curious, just out of curiosity, do you also see a talk therapist as well currently? No, I don't, I don't do any more therapy. Um, I mean, the, the groups that we run for guys are, are a kind of therapy for me. I go and facilitate them, but also I use them. You know, I'm a guy as well, and I have problems, so I, I use them and, you know, share my problems with the group, whether they want me to or not, but I do. Um, so, uh, so I guess I'm lucky like that. I've, I do that every week. You know, we do that every week for people here, um, and we're able to share. And I learn as much from them as they learn from me, hopefully. Oh, fantastic. So, um I know, like you mentioned, your actual website, Mentel Health, I believe, yeah. is was uh, created first by you blogging primarily for yourself, and now it's evolved into into much larger than just a blog. So, um, first, if you could start by telling everybody um, the website and web address that they can go to to find your website, and then I would just love for you to tell us more about your organization and the website. Okay, so the the organisation is Men Tell Health. That's three words: M E N T E L L Health. So Men Tell, as in men talking. dot org. Um, and yeah, as we touched on it, it started out as just a blog, really. Um, I think when I was struggling, 
Um, this, of course, there's some fantastic resources out there um, for mental health. But when I read them, they all felt a bit standoffish. They're all read, they're very formal and they're quite dry in their tone. Um, I always felt a bit like it was my mum talking to me or my boss or my doctor. And I didn't want that. I wanted a website that talked to me like my mate would talk to me, like my friend would talk to me. You know, so a little bit irreverent. Wouldn't just sit down and go, oh, yes, tell me all about it. I want to look at it. But yeah, let's have a chat. You know, very relaxed, very informal. And, of course, I couldn't find it. Um, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to create it myself. So while it started off as a blog, I always knew I wanted it to be more than that. Um, and eventually it went from being just a blog to a blog for me and for other people, um, kind of get guest blogs on. Um, and then it became a bit of an online resource, you know, what various illnesses. Again, trying to keep this somewhat irreverent tone, using humour as a very conscious engagement tool um, to draw people in. If we can laugh about it a little bit, I think it, it breaks down some of those barriers. Um, and now it's it's grown exponentially. So it's from being just a blog, we run we won a national uh, award a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations! So that was fantastic. We run a number. Of Thank you very much. That was hugely um, surprising, if nothing else. Um, and yes, yeah, so we, we're running a number of groups around the UK. Hopefully, you know, I'd love to think that we're going to have one of these in every every town in the country, and then every town in the world eventually. Um, and it, that just seemed like the natural next natural step, the next natural evolution of what we were doing. So we were doing a lot of virtual support online, but we wanted some more physical support. Sadly, where where I live here in the UK. Um, up until when we started the groups, we had the lowest, or sorry, the highest suicide rate in the country. Um, this town called Middlesbrough, and we were 152 out of 152 on the the national suicide. And as, and that's my hometown, and I, I couldn't let stand by and <laughs> let that go. So we're trying to do something about that. Ah, that's a phenomenal goal that you have. You mentioned virtual help. Um, do you run, are your support groups just in person and do you run them all and how many support groups are you running? Um, no, I don't run them all. We have uh, five in the UK um, with got plans for another six coming. So hopefully by the end of the year we'll have 10. Now, that might not sound overly impressive, but you have to remember I'm running this up until recently on my own <laughs> with very limited funds. Um, but I'm very good at big stealing and borrowing favours and getting people on board for what we're trying to do. Um, so I don't run them all, so we have them where I live. We have four of them here, uh, a town called Grimsby, which is about maybe two hours away. Um, and again, plans, because often what's happened is people saw what we were doing. We're quite, quite, we have a very strong social media presence um, and we're very vocal on there. Uh, and people was saw what we were doing here and kind of, sent us tweets and messages saying, hey, can we can we steal that idea? And we said, you don't have to steal it. We'll work with you and we'll we'll help you build it. You know, I'm a big believer in collaboration, not competition. Um, and I'm always enthused by when I go out and meet people, to see some of the fantastic work that they're doing in the community. And often because I've never heard of them and they've probably never heard of me, but I always think, imagine how good it would be, for, how much good we could do together if we're doing all this good stuff on our own. So we, you know, we one of one of the big ethos we have within is is working with people, strength in numbers, as I say, collaboration, not competition. Um, it's all about helping people at the end of the day. Well, you sound uh, incredibly modest. I would like to say that running that number of groups and having them in multiple cities is huge. Like, um, so uh, yeah, I, I want uh, want to. I think you ought to be patting yourself on the back because that is that's. Uh, a big deal, and I don't know if people understand that. Thank you very much. I do appreciate. It. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's you know it takes a lot of time, and I spend a lot of time here in this office, uh, sat in front of this computer, sending emails at crazy hours of the midday and night. Um, but you know we we aren't doing it for awards. We aren't doing it for prizes. We're just trying to help people. Um, you know, there's this kind of stereotype that men don't talk. Certainly, at our groups, that isn't true. We Getting them to talk isn't the problem. Getting them to shut up is sometimes a problem. Once, <laughs> once they've broken that seal and they're away, uh, we have you know the, the meant to last an hour. Some of our groups sometimes they go on for nearly two because people are just you know they come. And our groups are very different to most groups. So if you were to say, you say support group, most people think of the kind of 
chairs in a circle and everybody staring at their feet saying, hello, my name is Gary and I'm a, I'm, I have anxiety, I have depression. Our groups are the exact opposite of that. Um, we choose venues where there are big comfy sofas, um, coffee shops, cafes, very relaxed atmospheres where people, where the environment is conducive to talking. You know, there's no pressure. Anybody who comes to our groups to talk, they can say as much or as little as they want when they want, when they feel comfortable. Um, we, you know, we obviously, if we don't talk about mental health at all, we sometimes we talk about the local match or the, the latest game that we've played, then that's what we do. You know, and if we find that naturally those conversations about whether it's depression or anxiety just naturally come from there. And so we, we work very hard at creating that atmosphere. So I'm really uh, I'm curious about that. That sounds phenomenal to get uh, men into comfortable areas that are conducive to talking. I think that's a great um, yeah. a great piece of what you do. Do you in in like a coffee shop? I guess my question would be: Do you have private rooms where you do that, or and are people a little intimidated talking about it with others who might be sitting right next to them? So how does that piece work? Um, well, the, the coffee shops we, we work with, they open up just for us. So um, there's no danger of any, you know, bumping into anybody you don't might want, want to see unless they're coming along to the group as well. Um, but, yeah, all the groups, are, they're close to the public. They just open up just for us. Um, so the, the so coffee shop is only they're, they're only open for you guys. So you essentially have a, a rented yeah. coffee shop for yourself. Yeah, and but, again, um, we don't even rent them, they're free. I mean, we buy everybody who comes a free cup of tea or a cup of coffee um, because we want to help these guys who are staying open for us. We want to give them a little bit. They're helping us. We want to help them. And we like to use independent, you know, uh, coffee shops and cafes, so we're helping the local community as well. Um, when we were doing the groups, or before we started them, we did a lot of, a lot of research with guys about groups and support groups and ask them, we didn't ask them, you know, what would what could we do to get you there? We asked them what would what would keep you away from it? Um, uh, and the three main answers, guys used to always say, well, I, I don't want to pay for it, <laughs> which is fair enough. Okay, so all our groups are free, or the groups are free for the people attending. Um, those who were interested in groups often complained that the, any groups that did exist always took place on an afternoon when, when guys are at work. So all our groups take place on an evening. And the biggest bugbear that people had was forms, documentation that I had to fill in because they were worried that we would send it to their employer or to their partner or to the doctor. And we really tried lots of different ways to convince them that we wouldn't do that. But in the end, we just said, well, okay, let's not have any forms then. There's no forms for you to fill in. You don't even have to give your name if you come. You know, you can do if you like, but you don't have to. Um, and that was huge. It's it's in, it sounds like a small thing, but it's actually revolutionary not to have to come and fill a form in, especially for guys. Yeah. So yeah. we said, let's just, you just come when you want, you know. And um, it's that's been huge. It makes life difficult when you're looking for funding, and because they will always want some sort of data, qualitative data or quantitative data about what you're doing. And I always have to write a paragraph that says we don't have any data, and this is why. I can give you testimonials from guys who who say it's helped them, who saved their life, but I can't give you any data. Yeah, that we is... we don't have any. <laughs> wow. That is really, really cool. Um, so, and I don't know if I have mentioned on here in my conversation with you enough, but I am a huge, huge supporter of... Um, of support groups. I, I believe so strongly in them. And I've been, um, you know, doing well uh, mentally, and I still go every other week to a men's support group for um, depression and anxiety. And I, there is, I think that is my, the best tool I have in my tool belt that I will not, not give up. And I've asked the guy who runs them, like, no, I've been right. doing fine for a long time. Can I keep coming, please? And uh, <laughs> and it's such a great group where the guys support one another. They give suggestions. Yeah. It's a, a trusting, safe group where you know everybody's been through similar things. Um, I always say yeah, that I don't so think I don't think anybody who's has not been through a major depression. I don't think they can really understand what that. Um, feels like and what no. that is like. And when you walk into a support group of men who have dealt with depression, it's instant trust. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting on our literature, we don't say support group on, right? Because often people, 
this probably isn't going to work on an audio podcast. You know, they curl the nose up and think, mm, support group, don't like the sound of that. Um, but we, so our, this is life's tough, let's talk about this. You know, because we all have these problems, whether you've been diagnosed or not. Most people, certainly in the UK, around 75% of people who take their own lives are men. But around 75% of those people have never been in service. They've never been in mental health services. They're just people trying to deal with life and everything it throws at them and sometimes not dealing with it. So, you know, it, our flyers don't say mental health anywhere on there. Yeah, it's right. just, come on, guys, let's get together, whether it's work or the kids or money or, you know, whatever, it may, physical health, whatever it might be. Life's tough. Let's talk about it. And yeah. You often see them, especially when they come the first time. They are a little bit cagey. They're a little bit, you know, body language is a bit tight. But over the course of that hour, you see that all disappear. And that, that is an incredible thing to see. Our last group we had the other day, we had our first vicar came, our first priest came. Um, I mean, didn't come with his, you know, his, his collar and anything, but it was it was brilliant to see. He said, you know, he said he's the head of this community and that's a lot of pressure for him. So he just comes and we... We had a cup of tea, and we <laughs> we just talked about stuff for an hour, and it was amazing to say that. Ah, that is incredible. Um, another uh, part of your organization and website that you mentioned was guest blogs. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, are those men sharing their stories? Are they sharing tips? What what type of guest blogs do you typically have? I mean, it's a bit of both, really. So we have a section on the website called Men Tell Their Stories. Um and, yeah, these are just a collection of stories from men and women from all over the world about their own experiences of mental ill health. Um, you know, as I say, we're a men's organization. We're actually the four most popular blogs we've ever had were all written by women. <laughs> um, so, yeah, often men, I think it might be a generalization, but often men think they're the only ones going through whatever it is they're going through. The idea of these stories are to show that actually somebody else has been through what you're going through. Um, and so whilst the idea being that somebody would read them, and of course we can't replicate somebody's story 100%, but the idea is we can, hopefully if they're reading our story, you'll think, oh, that's, I recognise that, that's me that, or I, I recognise that bit of this guy's story. And as we always say to people who write for us, we don't mind if it goes to some dark places, kind of life can get pretty dark at times. Um, but we always insist at the end on a positive note. So if people do recognise signs or things that they recognise in their story and themselves, you know, the, however dark it might got, this guy's or this lady's got through it. You know, whether they found a support group or they started a new hobby or they met a, the love of their life or they started volunteering for an organisation, whatever it might be, whatever that kind of catalyst of change was to kind of go, you know what, let's do something about this. Um, so, yeah, we have a hundred and I think about nearly 140. We try and put a new one on every day. Sorry, every week. Um, and get, anybody can write for us. We've had a few guys who've wrote a n- number of times. And I'm staggered by the quality of the writing, especially these guys who will say, oh, I've never, I've never written anything before. And I say, well, just just try it, you know, just give it a go. And they come, and I just think, I don't think, you know, I'm a writer kind of by profession. I, think, I don't think I could have wrote any better than that. It's incredible, you know. So uh, that's the idea of those stories. So anybody can write their story and share it with the world. They can do it anonymously if they'd like, but we've, I think we've only had maybe two anonymous ones in, in the history of the site because people want to tell their story. You know, they want to go, you know what? There's nothing wrong with it. There's no, it doesn't make me any less of a person because I've had mental illness and depression. Right. And that's fantastic to see. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, how do people find out about you for the most part? Do you think it's through Twitter? Uh, how do they find out about, your site so that they could contribute? Um, it comes a lot through social media. So on Twitter, we are at Mental Health, and we have a Facebook page and Instagram. So if you just search for Mental Health, you'll find us. But a lot of it comes through Google. If you look at the analytics and the site, um, it's people just searching for help and support about whether it's depression or any mental illness. And thankfully, we're building a little momentum now, and it we cover a whole range of mental illnesses, a lot of them that other sites don't do. So, um, yeah, people find us that way, and we have, you know, guides on what it is and what to look for and symptoms and all this kind of thing. So there's a whole wealth of resources on the website that, that people can look at. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you mentioned it's three words, men tell health, but as you look it up, it's yes. actually one written as one word for the website, correct? Mental oh, yeah, health, yeah. Mentalhealth.com? Yeah. 
Org. .org. I'm sorry. .org. Okay, mentalhealth.org. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I love that each of the pieces tries to end with a hopeful piece. And I always mention yeah. my goals for this podcast. One is I want people to see just how debilitating depression can be. I think there's a misconception yeah. by a lot of people who have never been through it that it's just sadness. And I try, I try to explain that a lot of times it's not even sadness. It's more of a numbness. Um, and <laughs> it then, is. It's a nothingness is what it is sometimes. It, yeah. And then uh, I want this to be a sense of hope, right? Like you're a perfect example. Absolutely. You actually took a handful of pills and tried to end your life. And now look at what you're doing through that experience. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty I amazing. Say, yeah. I mean, I, I say it to my wife. I say, look, I've never worked so hard. I've never earned so little, but I've never been happier um, doing what we do. So, and, and, you know, it's an incredibly difficult period of my life that, to go through, but actually without it, I wouldn't be here. You know, without it, I would have just been doing the thing that most people do. We get up and we go to work, we come home and we have dinner, it, we watch some TV and then we get up and we <laughs> that kind of cycle. There's nothing wrong with it, but I think sometimes, you know, you've got to take the positives out of the negatives, however bad they may be. It, it completely changed the trajectory of your life, having been in such a low place. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That is, that's amazing. And then the, the third uh, goal I always say about my podcast, and I would imagine it's a huge piece of yours as well, is just destigmatizing mental illness and talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess in many ways what we try and do is normalize it. You know, yeah. we're not trying to advocate that any guys who talk about the mental health or any kind of, wow, it's amazing that you've talked about it. You know, if they talked about their broken leg, we wouldn't go, wow, it's amazing that you've talked about it. We just think, oh, yeah, okay, great. You know, we're just trying to normal. It needs to be the most normal thing in the world. Yeah. You know, we're not putting anybody on pedestals. We're just saying, you know, great. You know, the more we do that, the less stigma people are going to feel because we want to make it just part of normal life as, as it should be, as it is. Yeah. You know, everybody has mental health. Not everybody has mental ill health, but everybody has mental health. So this, uh, this might be a misconception of mine, and I would love to hear your take on it. My brother happens to live in England. And he makes it sound, and he happens to be a family doctor, um, but or a general practitioner. He makes it sound like talking about mental illness and mental health is much more the norm, like you're talking about normalizing it, in England than what we see here. Mm. And I know it's tough for me to compare it or you to compare it because you don't live here. But, <laughs> yeah. but he talks about meeting several people out on the streets who are like, yeah, I'm on my mental, my mental health break from work. Um, and he makes that yeah. sound like it's a normal part of conversation. And here, like I took three weeks off of work and I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want them to know it was a mental health break <laughs> I was taking. Yeah, yeah. And, and I never shared it with people at work. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess it's probably hard for me to say really because I work in this kind of environment. I, I speak to people who are in the mental health field all the time. So it feels very normal for me. But I think if I cast my mind back to when I was, you know, before I was ill, when I was just kind of working as, as everybody else does, I think, yeah, I don't think I'd have, you know, when I, I had PTSD, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that it was a mental illness. And, you know, the, all the stuff I was going through, and that might just be my naivety. Um, I think it is changing. I mean, your brother, if your brother works in the UK, I think it has changed certainly in the last year or so with the, with the royal family speaking out more about it. But I think it's just becoming more part of life and i think it's brilliant that it's it's kind of very high in the news agenda at the moment mm. we just have to try and keep it there you know before they move on to something else you know donald trump or you know whatever it might be we need to focus on it and we it's probably the reason we tend not to do anything for world mental health day because every day is world mental health day for us you know and i think if we want to normalize and we want parity of esteem then we don't need a special day for it because Every day should be World Mental Health Day, as every day should be World Physical Health Day. Absolutely. Yeah, I love the idea of just normalizing it, right? Make it a part of our conversations yeah. and, and so forth. Um, so great, great work you're doing with your organization. Um, any? Uh, do you have any final tips, suggestions, or words of hope that you have for anybody who might be suffering at, currently? I think um, you don't have to suffer alone. Um, you don't have to go to a group. It would be great for you, but we, we, we work on the assumption we offer both covert support and overt support. So if guys do want to write their story and they want to come to the group, 
That's absolutely fine. I want to talk about their mental health. That's absolutely fine. But we also recognise not everybody's there yet. Um, and it is difficult. We don't know your circumstances. We can't judge anybody. But we don't know then just ignore them and say, well, if you're not coming to the group, there's nothing we can do. We want to offer covert support, which is why things like this podcast are brilliant. People can listen to it in their own time. They can go on the website and there's plenty of resources out there. There's apps that can help you. So if you, you know, you ask, you don't have to suffer alone. You know, you can keep, you can keep that world, but you can make it better than you can. It needs to be, you know, mental illness isn't a choice, but sometimes recovery is. Um, and so remember those things that made you feel better. If it's just, even if it's as simple as going for a walk on a morning, just to feel the air, get a bit of exercise, you know, do little things. It doesn't have to be a huge step. Just try one thing tomorrow that you didn't do today and see if it works. If it doesn't, try something else. If it does, do it more the day after. Um, but that's, that's what I would say to anybody. Yeah, that's fantastic. Like you said, um, and I was going to say the piece where you mentioned you don't have to suffer alone. I was going to say that's some great advice, no. but that is actually life-saving advice, right? I think it tends to be Absolutely. those who are not reaching out for help, who are, are masking their depression and suffering on their own that yeah. end up taking the drastic steps like you tried to take. Um, yeah. So reach out for help. I, I did that. I wore that mask, you know, when I was when I was ill and I went back to work. I I was I used to work for a telecoms company, um, and I would spend all day with a nice happy smile doing my work. And I doubt anybody would have noticed there was anything wrong with me. I used to, it was about a thirty minute drive for me to get home, and sometimes I would cry my eyes out all the way home. Mm-hmm. Or if not, I would open the front door. As soon as I shut the front door, that emotion and that pressure and that anxiety and that it would just come flooding out of me. Um, so if you're wearing that mask, we all do it, but, um, you can take it off. It's still you. So just be who you are and get that help. Ask somebody, ask your mate, you know, people often self stigmatize, certainly with men, you know, um, but you know, if you've got friends, speak to them. If you've got a partner, speak to them, got a doctor, speak to them. Just speak to somebody. You'd be amazed how much better you'll feel. I went through those incredible crying bouts as well. And I think, like you said, um, a big part of that is is the energy it takes to wear that mask and fake that you're fine all day long. And then you just explode at the end. It is exhausting. And like you said, take that mask off. Acknowledge that you. it's okay to not be okay. And, and reach out for support, yeah, whether it's a, a caring loved one that you have, whether it's mentalhealth.org yeah. um, or another yeah. professional, but get the help so that there you can recover. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, mental illness is, life's tough, you know, for all of us, whether you, you have a mental illness or not, just dealing with modern day life, you know, social media, the pressures that brings work holding down a job and family and looking after children all that kind of thing life's tough it was a mantra we we developed at one of the early first groups we had we just went you know life's tough man <laughs> and that's kind of been a bit of a mantra ever since you know we just think you know life is tough yeah years ago you know go back centuries you'd have gone to the village elders or the, the shaman or the wise man and, and talk about your problems somehow in in this modern world we've created, we've, we've lost that. We think we all just have to keep it all in ourselves and, and we don't because we can't like, you know, we're not designed for this, <laughs> this modern life and everything it throws at us. So it's not a sign of weakness asking for help. It's a sign of strength knowing, and it's a sign of wisdom knowing the limits of your own capabilities. And it's just saying, you know what? I need a bit of help right now. What might no need? That might be all you need. A little chaff for an hour. Thankfully, you know, we get guys come to the groups who'll just come kind of get it off the chest for a, and have a bit of a run for 20 minutes and then I'll go, oh, I feel so much better. And that's brilliant. That's what they need. That's what they need. And that's absolutely fine. Well, Gary, I want to thank you for your time. And more importantly, I want to thank you for essentially uh, dedicating your life to serving others in this capacity. It's incredible work you're doing. Continue with it. Know, know that you're much. making a difference. Um, that's quite obvious. Uh, give yourself a pat on the back and keep doing the great work. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been my absolute pleasure. It's uh, the things like what you're doing, just you know, giving people that space. They can listen to through the headphones or in an hour or so. It'll make all the difference. It'll make all the difference. It may not even be tangible to you and to what I do, but it, it makes so much difference. So well, thank you. 
Well, thank you once again, and make sure you stay healthy. Thank you, my friend. I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.